Hello and welcome to the IIMB podcast brought to you by the communication cell and student media cell of IIM Bangalore. The new podcast series aims to become a platform to discuss the latest business, economic, management and social issues that matter. The podcast will witness IIM Bangalore fraternity including but not limited to the faculty members, students and alumni provide their insights and perspectives to the topics and issues that surround us. The COVID-19 pandemic is more than a health crisis. It is an economic crisis, a humanitarian crisis, a security crisis and a human rights crisis. Coming out of this crisis will require a whole of society, whole of government and whole of the world approach. The COVID-19 pandemic has thus brought to the forefront the pertinent role of organizations like the World Health Organization, United Nations Human Rights Office, amongst others and conventions like CITES. Fighting such a crisis requires strategic preparedness and response plan from such organizations to ease the impact amongst nations. To understand some of these challenges and how the international organizations are adapting to these changes, we have with us Professor A. Damodaran from the Economic and Social Sciences area at IIM Bangalore. Professor Damodaran did his doctoral studies in economics and has held academic and professional assignments abroad, including visiting faculty positions. Apart from his work on environmental and climate financing, Professor Damodaran led the initiative on biodiversity financing for the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity, CBD, in 2011 which was morphed into the UNDP-driven Biofin project. Since 2015, he has been the chairperson of the Government of India Technical Advisory Committee of Biofin India. He was part of India's delegation to CBD to negotiate biodiversity financing issues in COP11. Welcome, Professor Damodaran, to this episode of the IMB podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. Professor, the World Health Organization's handling of the epidemic has come under criticism amidst what has been described as the agency's diplomatic balancing act between China and China's critics. The WHO has also been criticized for not stating that the COVID-19 outbreak was a pandemic until significantly after it had already clearly become one. What steps could WHO have taken to prepare for the world better in the wake of COVID-19? My answer would be that WHO had failed to declare the pandemic in time. And that is probably also because, you know, national reports from the country concerned had not come in that manner, in a proper manner. And you should also understand that WHO has a constraint of operating in in its member countries. If the member governments are not in inclined to allow them to operate. So that is the first point that I would like to underline. The second uh, point about WHO is, now not trying to be very you know, charitable about them, but it's a, it's a fact that the organization handled Ebola well, it handled SARS well, and it could have handled Spanish flu also well <clears throat> if it was born in 19, uh, 1980. It was not born in 1980. It was part of the League of Nations. This is one of the oldest organizations of the United Nations, but it was still, it did not have the experience of handling the Spanish flu. So to that extent, uh, its institutional memory notwithstanding, 
it would have been difficult for it to handle the next big thing to have happened 100 years later that is a COVID-19. Having said all this, I should say that uh, WHO is not a program of the United Nations. It is a specialized agency of the United Nations. It has its own autonomy. It has its own governing system. And it has its own dedicated resources uh, for carrying out its own programs, though those resources may not be adequate. So take uh, WHO's mandate. It is uh, meant for the highest possible level of health uh, and safety for a world of teeming populations, right? So a specialized organization which is looking into health has to be science driven and it has to be completely based on information which is accurate. Now, if WHO stuck to it, to this mandate of science driven interventions in the world, it will not make the mistakes it had it had made during the difficult days, the initial difficult days of COVID-19. So my answer to this question is, the fundamental answer to your question is, stick to it, your mandate, stick to its uh, choose agenda in a non-controversial manner, keep science in forefront, WHO achieves its mandate for which it was always known. But you should understand that uh, uh, a lot of Security Council or General Assembly kind of politics has permeated into specialized organizations as well. And WHO is just one of the victims. There are other victims also. There are other specialized organizations in the United Nations which are also suffering from that. But let us give credit to WHO to, uh, for what good work it has done. But let it also be, uh, be made aware of the fact that it needs to stick to its mandate of a science-driven approach to human health, which tries to keep out complicated uh, politics. So COVID-19 is a very good example of how one thing happening in one part of the world can directly affect everyone across the globe, which is behind the concept of global commons. Since COVID-19 pandemic has affected everyone world over, Potential vaccines for COVID-19 should also be made available to all as good global commons. So what strategy or strategies do you think should WHO adopt for reaching and distributing the vaccines amongst global humanity? And what role can organizations like the Gavi Alliance play in this regard? See, the COVID-19 pandemic is, has been a very unprecedented thing to happen in 100 years. Earlier it was not COVID-19, it was Spanish flu. It is also uh, a form of influenza that happened at that time. And in those days, you know, there was no question of the, a vaccine being discussed. The science had not advanced to the level that it has advanced today. Uh, but I, I would tell you that yes, COVID-19 is a very bad global common to have happened. And it has completely paralyzed economies, etc. It has also created fundamental fissures in society, social distancing and things like that. But at the end of the day, um, being a special event, it requires special solutions. And one of the uh, critical issues with COVID-19 has been uh, not just the production of vaccines, but also reaching it to people, uh, especially the needy people, needy people mostly in developing countries, these developed countries. 
so on and so forth. Now that is a very tough task for a United Nations organizations to, uh, organization to undertake. Now what I mean by this is that Gavi Alliance is a unique international body. It is, it is not a United Nations body, it is not a public international body. It is a kind of a consortium, a consortium of public and private. And, you know, it, it is a spin-off uh, of the Gates Foundation. And it has done well for itself, especially in um, vaccinations and immunization uh, programs. Now, WHO has to join hands with Guardians because it's like a private public or a private public consortium alliance to see that uh, whatever vaccines are developed and are the most robust ones reach to every country in record time. So to that extent, this is a wonderful thing to have, you know, a partnership between WHO and Gavi Alliance. Having said that, I should also tell you that um, the issue of vaccines is uh, has proceeded in very typical uh, political lines. Now, let me put it this way. You know, it is said that when it comes to a global commons technology, which is of a positive nature, which is supposed to help global welfare, all countries are supposed to pull their heads together and work on it. But that is not what has happened. You know, every country was for itself. Uh, therefore, China went for its own uh, research on vaccines. Russia went, went for its Sputnik vaccine. United States, of course, has its uh, companies going for uh, its own type of vaccine. Now, there are two or three companies in the race. Um, Moderna, then, of course, the Pfizer, which is making news these days because it has come through. Finally, the drug, the vaccine has come through. So, these are two or three companies which are in the running in the US. And then India also has its own vaccine through AstraZeneca. Oxford and Serum Research Institute. Now, this is not what is expected from a situation like this. It is a global common of a positive type that you are trying to work on. You have to pull your heads together. It is not happening because of the politics of the world. Now, WHO cannot be blamed for that because it has it is a part of the larger power struggle in the international sphere. Uh, therefore, though not desirable, we have to live with it. But if WHO comes forward and pushes this COVAX program of Gavi Alliance, then it is going to make a big difference in distribution. And so that, you know, the needy populations get it and we come out of this pandemic in some time, at least in, uh, much, in a much more efficient manner. So I would say that that, that is one of the biggest uh, partnerships that we require. Now, having said that, of course, the intellectual property rights issue will come up because each country, each company is working for itself. Now, obviously, each country, a company or country is working for itself to have an intellectual property control on the product. Now, look at what Pfizer is doing. Pfizer is coming on and discussing with India, while India itself is uh, locked up in developing its own vaccines. Now, this is uh, intellectual property right driven. So India has been asking in the uh, WTO forums for waiving the intellectual property rights on uh, the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, what happens to it, we don't know, but definitely 
the one thing which is going to happen is um, the world needs vaccines and to be the COVID-19 successful COVID-19 vaccines to be distributed at a on a very fast track. Now, if that has to be done, yeah, uh, by and if intellectual property rights stands in its way, we should see that that barrier is removed. Now, TRIPS, WTO Trade Related Intellectual Property Rights, has got its own provisions of compulsory licensing, which countries have been exercising. Countries like India, South Africa, they have been exercising it on, you know, other tracks. There's no reason why they should not invoke compulsory licensing provisions to reach, uh, to manufacture the vaccines in sufficient quantities for distributing it amongst its own population in case the waiver doesn't happen, the pattern waiver doesn't happen. So that is how I would put it. But providing COVID-19 vaccine as a global common to everyone would be challenged by pharmaceutical companies who might try to patent their formulations to recover the large R&D costs incurred by them to develop the vaccine. And this discussion on intellectual property and patents on global commons has been going on for years. And the COVID-19 pandemic has sort of brought it to the forefront with countries arguing on both sides. And as mentioned by you, sir, previously, the World Trade Organization members this week also discussed the proposals submitted by India and South Africa to relax certain provisions in intellectual property agreement with a view to containing the pandemic, but were unable to reach a conclusion. In your opinion, Professor, what do you think can be a possible way forward when it comes to intellectual property rights surrounding global commons? See, global commons uh, way of looking at intellectual property rights is different from a corporate perspective of intellectual property rights. Now, if you take a global commons perspective, it, say, it says that even intellectual property rights are supposed to be global commons. It should be freely available. Now, in practice, it does not work out because companies spend hell of a lot of money to uh, develop new drugs. And it will be unfair that it should be available for free. But having said that, um, Intellectual property rights provisions in the TRIPS, the WTO Trade Related Intellectual Property Rights uh, Agreement, uh, does provide for a lot of flexibility from the rule of monopoly. It allows, as I told you a little while ago, compulsory licensing uh, to be exercised. And uh, so it should work out in case waiver is not possible. Now, when I talked about waiver a little while ago, I did not mention the point that waiver is not forever. It has to be for a specific period of time till the crisis uh, go, I mean, is removed. Now, subsequent rounds of vaccines need not be distributed through a compulsory licensing route because, you know, it can be subjected to a kind of differential pricing. Now, for needy countries, you have, you know, a price which is closer to the willingness to pay of an average citizen or its national health system. But to, for well-to-do countries, of course, uh, you know, these uh, prices can be higher. So conventionally, um, the way um, more enlightened companies do is to go for a kind of third-order price discrimination system so that everyone gets something and with, without there being spillovers between markets or amongst markets. So that is how I would say. Uh, I would consider the issue to be solved. Professor Saites of the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species 
regulates the global trade in some of the world's most threatened species with the power to ban it when needed. It is one of the few binding environmental conventions followed by more than 183 parties. However, the CITES Secretariat appeared to distance itself from the COVID-19 crisis which has origins to the illegal trade of the Malayan pangolins which is drawing criticism and scrutiny. Can CITES as it exists today help ward off the pandemic of the future? And do you think the CITES convention needs to undergo changes especially after learnings from the current epidemic? Well, my answer will be divided into two parts. One is uh, the adequacy of CITES to deal with issues like COVID-19 pandemic. The second is whether we have to look beyond CITES to have a much more effective, more comprehensive, all-round handling of the problem. Now, let me answer the first part. CITES was not meant to handle zoonotic diseases. CITES was not designed for that. CITES was basically a very old convention, goes back to 1960s, and one of the very few conventions in, the, in which the United States played a very important role. I mean, I'm talking of conservation-related conventions in which the United States played an important role. But it was basically uh, designed to prevent international movement or what they call as transboundary movement of endangered and threatened species of animals and plants. So it was not designed for disease related spread uh, transmissions. It was basically designed for this purpose. Stop illicit, illicit or illegal movement of animal species and um, plant species across countries. Now, given this limited mandate, there is no way by which an idea called a zoonotic disease-related movement of animals will be covered by it. Now, it is well known that CITES does not include horse bats. Now, horse bats are the primary source of uh, COVID as well as the earlier varieties of Ebola and other things. But CITES does not cover that situation, so it clearly requires an amendment to include such species, zoonotic species. So I would imagine that in the category of endangered and threatened species, which is which are the two big lists in the CITES convention, you could add a list of uh, zoonotic prone uh, species like horse, horseshoe bats, pangolins, etc. Then it could have some effect in controlling movement. But as uh, John Scanlon, who was a former Secretary General of CITES, one of the very erudite minds on international law, conservation law and regulations, he says uh, that you know you need to supplement CITES with United Nations protocols on trafficking, on illegal trafficking of animals. Then it becomes a much more stronger system. But I would go one more, a couple of steps more to say, to say that, you know, it is not just enough for CITES or trafficking um, laws uh, to plug the problem of uh, pandemics in future, especially pandemics which arise from zoonotic diseases. But also take a look at the WTO agreement on sanitary and phytosanitary measures. Now, WTO sanitary and phytosanitary measures is also about plant, animal, and human health. Now, I am really surprised that this convention 
or this agreement does not get discussed in the context of uh, COVID-19 uh, and the zoonotic problems associated with it. Well, the, the WTO-SPS has a very, it's a big agreement. It is mainly designed to prevent contamination, etc., arising from, um, you know, uh, arising from movement of goods, having a bearing on plant, animal, and human life across countries. Now, there is a provision uh, which is uh, an appendix which says that you know you should have a system of control inspection and you know an oversight of markets now i i fail to understand why we should not be including um, you know wet markets of uh, in different parts of the world and uh, why we are not bringing them in the ambit of uh, the sps agreement if we do that then you have another a triple protection you have cites you have trafficking laws you also have sps and now let me go to the fourth uh, leg of protection, which we can give to prevent uh, the COVID-19 of the future, uh, the biosafety protocol. Now, the biosafety protocol, which is referred to as Cartagena Protocol, which was signed in Cartagena uh, many years ago, is a protocol of the Biodiversity Convention. Now, it's, it says that uh, we have to limit the movement of living modified organisms or LMOs. Now, LMOs are defined as genetically engineered organisms, but I fail to understand why it can't be amended to also include naturally modified organisms uh, like viruses. Uh, why I say that is, you know, the COVID-19 uh, disease came because of the virus jumping from bats, virus jumping interspecies-wise. So it was in bats, from bats it went to pangolin, and from pangolin it went to human beings. Every time it jumped from one, one medium to the other, it had to undergo mutations. So now those mutations were induced because of extreme insanitary or conditions in wet markets. But if uh, the LMOs, uh, the convention of the Cartagena protocol was amended to include them, then it would have been a much more, you know, uh, better control, better monitoring of such things from happening in future. Now, why I'm saying is that if the LMO was expanded to include uh, the coronavirus as it got mutated, as it jumped from bats to pangolins to human beings, then there is a provision under the Cartagena protocol to monitor. Right now, there is no monitoring happening because this uh, thing called coronavirus or viruses of the future do not get regulated in any manner. Now, this, uh, there is a convention also which talks a very old convention of 1920s, World War era, you know, World War One era, um, which also talks about animal movements and uh, control on animal movements and diseases coming from that. But that is only for domesticated animals. It is not for animals in the wild. So, in other words, I would triangulate the problem as not just of CITES, but also of trafficking laws, United Nations trafficking protocols, plus um, the SPS, the WTO-SPS, and biosafety protocol. If we uh, in, I mean, make these four of them much more efficient and enlarge the scope of these four um, conventions or agreements, then we can have a much better international 
internationally strong legal system to prevent uh, COVID-19 from happening in the future. Professor, the pandemic has exposed social injustices at a global scale, exacerbating, intersecting and deep-rooted inequalities within countries and asymmetries among them. Poorer nations face collapsing trade, falling remittances, capital flight and currency depreciation. How can the United Nations Human Rights Office and other international organizations address these inequalities, institutional weaknesses and structural human rights violations that are coming to the forefront due to the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, my answer to this will be a little complex because we are talking of economic crisis, exchange rates, falling currencies, balance of payment, disequilibrium. Now, these do not fall within the mandate of the United Nations. Uh, it falls in the mandate of International Monetary Fund. Now, that itself says something, you know, which is of very fundamental uh, purpose. Uh, what it say, says is that the United Nations system of human rights does not include human rights problems that arise from macroeconomic crisis. So that is the, one of the biggest deficiencies. Now, how we solve that deficiency, I'm not very sure how we solve it. Unless uh, the IMF, which the Bretton Woods Institution, sits with the uh, United Nations, uh, you know, the, the top apex body of the United Nations to discuss this. I don't know whether it will happen in that manner. But let me uh, tell you a couple of uh, points. Uh, yes, you are right that uh, human rights uh, record of the United Nations, as far as laws, laws are concerned or declarations are concerned, is phenomenal. Uh, you know, the UN Charter, which is a constitution of uh, the United Nations, which, was, which came in 1945, was followed by United Nations Declaration on Human Rights in 1948, just three years after that. Now, these two are very robust instruments which talk about a variety of human, right, uh, human rights uh, violations like uh, loss of jobs, loss of, uh, uh, loss of means of subsistence, and so on and so forth. And if you look at it, uh, very recently, maybe in 1980s or 1990s, we also had a special law on migrant worker protection. So human rights, uh, United Nations contribution to the jurisprudence of national laws is phenomenal. For instance, you know, it, was, it, it comes as a surprise that our Right to Information Act, which we talk about in India, um, you know, it came from the UN uh, DHR, the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights. The principle came from there, uh, Article 19 of that. So a lot of countries have to get inspired by UNDHR, which is only a declaration. It does not have the force of a convention or a charter uh, to frame national legislations. And that is something which we should be insisting that uh, that should happen in different countries of the world. But that has not happened so far uh, because a lot of countries think that, you know, economic rights can be reduced to right, of, right to employment and right to education and right to access to education, etc. But they do not think that economic privations, though it is mentioned in the UNDHR, that if somebody is economically deprived, that is also a violation of human rights. 
he does not find mentioned as a human right problem in national laws. So that is the uh, biggest deficiency. So if countries uh, take this COVID example and uh, say that, you know, we'll consider all aspects of employment, livelihood, and op other opportunities as a case of human rights violation, that will be, a, in fact, a, a fantastic thing to happen. But, you know, countries are, would not like to get into that kind of a commitment if they say that, you know, economic deprivation or loss of jobs is a human right problem, then the burden of obligation on those countries to ensure that it is plugged will be much higher. So this is the deficiency of it. Now, how do we solve it? Well, I would say that IMF uh, is encouraged to think of it as a human rights issue. Look at spots in the world where human rights problems arising from economic dislocation is a maximum. Try to reach help to those um, countries. Those are the things which we can think of. So that is how I would see it. Just in continuation to the previous question, Professor, various organizations around the world are predicting a deep global recession in the coming months and we have already witnessed a shrinking of global economies. How can a global economic recovery be made possible through multilateralism? See, multilateralism uh, has been dead for the last eight years, I mean, five, four years, right? Uh, because of trade wars between uh, US and China, US with other many other countries in the world. Now, unless trade picks up, I don't think economies in the world will pick up. Now, for trade to pick up, uh, we have to just get rid of this protectionism, which is uh, taken over different parts of the world. But right now, I don't think even that is a problem. Right now, I think most of the countries in the world are faced with a very, very um, phenomenal uh, economic crisis at the national level. Now, how to get over the crisis um, is something which they have to struggle with before they talk of exporting. Right. So I would imagine that it will all depend upon how well you stimulate your economies to do well. Now, stimulation of an economy is through monetary policy or fiscal policy, or whatever you might like to call it. But you should understand that in a world where uh, liquidity is hard to come by, right? Debt's mouth. Uh, the priority should be to see that the post-COVID recovery is accelerated before we think of new investments for enhancing our export markets. So to answer your question, trade liberalization is required, but this is not uh, something which is the most essential thing to happen now. The most essential thing is to reflate or ensure that the economies are up and running. And after that, if the trade barriers are going to be negotiated and brought down, then the world economy will start looking up. So that is how I see it. Professor, while the COVID-19 pandemic has shifted the attention of the entire world on health infrastructure, one of the most important issues that still remains is that of climate change. While global carbon dioxide emissions during the first six months of this year have witnessed a decrease of 8.8% as compared to the same period last year, according to a research published in the Journal of Nature Communications, 
we are still witnessing erratic weather patterns ravaging wildfires and floods across the world what impact do you think that the current pandemic will have on the global effort to combat climate change so that uh, question can be answered only in country specific context let, let me tell you about what is going to happen to india now india i would say is in a very very favorable position as far as recovery uh, based on a green strategy is concerned you know why because the last 3 uh, 4 years we have done phenomenally well in renewable energy and a uh, lot of green energy capacities have been created and a lot of uh, our conventional coal fired power stations have been retrofitted some of them have gone into the super critical uh, path so carbon emissions are we are already in a state of readiness to uh, achieve green growth the problem was that we had other problems in the economy like you know uh, the crisis that crept in after 2016 because of it, where the uh, the conventional systems and the methods by which the economy was growing was uh, disturbed and those things are there but at the end of the day our investments on green uh, green energy has been keeping uh, very steady growth and therefore if at all we, uh, we recover in the next 3 or 4 months we will be much greener than what we were before we went into the pandemic uh, induced recession so take the case of china now china china is also very much into renewable energy because uh, they are selling solar panels all across the world they are selling solar panels to india they are selling solar panels to us they are selling it to african countries but their own record on renewable energy generation is a little uh, you know slow as compared to india and the indian story is not getting highlighted much which i am surprised that it is not so but uh, definitely uh, when we recover we'll be greener than what we were before so it all depends on how well we green our recovery strategy india is eminently suitable to uh, do that china may get into that act a little while but europe they are talking about a green stimulus plan they have a green recovery plan but at the end of the day the reliance on coal is so phenomenal that you cannot expect them to you know switch so easily as perhaps india could so that is how i see it now the carbon dioxide emissions yes it came down it has come down but if you are having a if you are having a stimulus plan based on a Uh, low carbon energy uh, technologies then we will keep on we'll ensure that you know our emissions do not drastically rise in the recovery period now the conventional uh, the the framework convention on climate change the paris agreement particularly talks about all this um, uh, all these things but i think a very few countries will be in a position to have their nationally determined contributions really up and running after covid-19 barring a few countries like india so that is how i would see it uh at the conference of parties the cop25 climate summit which was held in madrid in 2019 negotiators were unable to finalize the text for article 6 of the paris climate agreement article 6 which talks about the rules for carbon markets and other forms of international cooperation is said to be the final piece that needs to be resolved 
Professor, what impact would COVID-19 have on future negotiations and what does this mean for the implementation of the Paris Agreement at the global scale? Well, I would say that Article 6, as it is, um, is existing in the Paris Agreement. I think the problem is, is about the rules of the game, how you should implement uh, the provisions of Article 6 uh, and how should we go about doing it. That is the issue. So Article 6 is there. I mean, you know, it, has, it was part of the 2015 agreement itself. Now, yes, you are right that there was no agreement on the rules of the game to be played. Uh, that is still going on. Maybe in Glasgow next year they will resolve the issue. Hopefully it, it should get resolved. But let me come to what is Article 6. A, Article 6 is uh, a broad brush statement of market and non-market, uh, you know, activities which are required to keep the Paris Agreement commitment of reduction or prevention of temperatures from rising by 1.5 degrees uh, centigrade uh, above the pre-industrial level. Now that was the spirit of the Paris Agreement. Now Article 6 talks about all of this. Article 6 also talks about, you know, um, what do you call as, uh, how to streamline the carbon markets. Now, for instance, Article 6.4, if I'm not mistaken, it talks about a new, uh, new United Nations sponsored, uh, you know, United Nations sponsored international carbon market regulatory regime to prevent uh, the current carbon markets getting truncated. Now, what I'm referring to is the European ETS, the emission trading system, is perhaps the only market which has worked well, reasonably well, not very well, but it has worked reasonably well. Now, that operates as a bucket. Then you have something happening in Switzerland, then you have something happening in Japan, but these are all lying in a different compartments. Now, the effort in Article 6.4 is basically to create a logarithm, I mean, a logbook, not logarithm, a logbook of all the efforts being done in, and the securities being sold, the securities being bought, the prices of the securities, and also to permit free flow of securities between these bucketed markets. That is a that's not a good uh, that's not a bad idea at all because this is something which has been affecting the carbon markets of the world. They all operate in small compartments. The volumes are not less. Therefore, price discovery does not tend to be very proper. So that way. Uh, the rules of the game have to come around these ideas, 6.2 and 6.4 and 6 of Article 6, which is about integrating the markets. Now, that is going to be a very important thing, but has to be very carefully negotiated because we have this experience of clean development mechanisms, uh, projects and permits which come from developing countries not being treated on par with uh, the allowances uh, in the European Union context, I and mean, I'm talking of the past, I'm not talking of the present situation. So we have a lot of issues of differential pricing of securities, carbon securities and carbon permits. These require a lot more thinking and tough uh, to ensure that the rules of the game work well. So that is the first point. But you should also understand that if you want a real agreement, it's not even about Article 6, it is about Article 9. Article 9, I think 3 and 4, subsections 3 and 4, is about financing them. So unless finance also flows uh, involving both 
public and private sector because public sector is going to be completely drained off because of the covid-19 problem but definitely private sector has to come in and even private sector is also in a bad situation but when the recovery happens if these two come together and scale up the financing then it is possible for a lot of carbon offset and carbon markets to function well so what i am trying to say is that if european union com companies uh, are have decided to invest in india they need to have money to invest in india they generate some good projects in renewable energy or india or any country bangladesh or uh, bhutan or any any country in the world they generate uh, securities and avoided emission permits which could be traded so unless the investments happen and finance happens article 6 will not be completely successful and unless finance happens you can't even have a proper finalization of the rules of trading so that is what i mean so we have to uh, next year in glasgow we have to think of uh, trying to interlink article 6 with article 9 and see whether it is possible to gain traction on this issue, the complex issue of laying down the rules of the game as far as trading is concerned the finance cannot be separated from trading both are important trading is market based finance is non market based unless these two combine which is again the spirit of article 6 there is no way by which we will get an outcome in glasgow so i think that should be the effort put financing allow financing to go with carbon markets then we may achieve something and now that the biden presidency looks like a reality uh, and the uh, us comes back to paris agreement um, then it will mean better news because the carbon market will substantially get enlarged so that is also a positive news and maybe we get a negligent faster than we think but it all depends upon the us congress uh, you know uh, getting in and supporting india with the us initiative to get back to paris so all this is there but i would say that article 6 and 9 should be read together negotiated together in the context of this uh, the rules of the game then we get some results professor we see that countries participating in international negotiations adopt the mantra of you try to get what you want if you can't get what you want you make sure no one else gets what they want negotiations are also about building personal connections with other parties and trying to convince others to give and take from your personal experience of representing india as a negotiator at the cbd and gef forums what challenges do you foresee coming from negotiations and interactions that are now happening virtually over video conferencing platforms well my answer is uh, very simple except the who's uh, general assembly or participants assembly i don't know what the exact term i don't remember the term except that because of covid they had to meet uh, virtually and have very long discussions most of the virtu other virtual meetings of importance have been postponed by an year for instance glasgow was supposed to happen this november and december now it's going to happen next november or december cbd most of it has been the most of the substantive issues are being front loaded to 2021 so virtual conferences are basically it's just a show to say that the world spirits are still high we still talk about business as usual but 
I don't think even negotiators who want, who are dreaming about the future or the, the negotiating community with dreams about the future to create a new architecture, etc., etc., they will be really entertaining hopes that they can achieve a breakthrough through virtual platform. Now I'll go back to my to the answer of my previous question. Article six and nine, if you want to negotiate, you can't obviously do it on a virtual platform. It requires a lot of consultation now, not through virtual media or to, uh, through the virtual platform. Uh, groups have to consult. It is very exhaustive, and sometimes a lot of it is withheld because you are not talking to a person directly. So I agree with you that virtual conferences cannot achieve the uh, the outcomes that you expect from uh, from a real real life conference. Now the other issue is yes. Um, uh, Copenhagen uh, COP uh, on climate change is a classic case where you know each country tried to do this. You know, if I don't get anything, then I will ensure that others don't get. So Copenhagen was a classic case of a summit that failed on that count. But Copenhagen led to Paris four years later. Copenhagen led to Durban. From Durban, it went to Paris. So there was uh, a. a a ray of sunshine coming from the corners, even when you are disagreeing and you are literally trying to pull each other, there is always a light at the end of the corner that one leads to. So that is the uh, uh, spirit of international negotiations. It never says that every uh, conference of parties or governing council meeting should be successful in getting results. It doesn't happen that way. It is painful. It is arduous. And it is takes place over a period of time. It is fatiguing. Uh, that is a thrill of a, uh, the real negotiating movement, you know, the moment that uh, one encounters in such forums, which is denied in a virtual context. Now, let me um, put this in a very simple way. You did mention about give and take and all that. I would say this give and take happens uh, only under certain circumstances. Every negotiator goes to a forum. I am familiar with the environmental forums. I would say that global environmental forums. I would say that when we go, we know exactly what our core interests are, where you cannot have any compromise. And then you have certain adventures or adventures or peripheral interests, which are which you would like to get, but not at the cost of losing out on the core interests. Now, most of the give and take happens on these peripheral interests that you uh, so you give up one to take the other because or sometimes you give up one peripheral interest to consolidate your core interest. So these are the uh, you know things that one has to keep in mind when we are considering the issue of actual negotiations. Now having said this, I also see an important point. This is this comes from my own experience with the thing which I have tried to put it in my writings. There is something called um, strategic ambiguity. Now, strategic ambiguity is something where you are ambiguous on certain issues, not because uh, you, don't, you don't have a position on that, but you don't have a core position on that. You would have a position, but you wouldn't like to state it openly. Now, that ambiguity is best expressed in a real forum, not in a virtual forum. I can be ambiguous about a text, and I can keep on rolling. Once I give my ambiguity, I say that I don't 
I don't have a position this way or that way. I find there are merits in this, but I also demerits in this. Why do I say that? Because I get out, go and talk to the, the negotiators who have a strong position on that and try to come on an agreement on a text which is good enough to secure both our interests. Now, that will not obviously happen in a virtual, uh, you know, virtual online platform. So, that is the first point. The second point is, uh, even if uh, virtual platforms are successful uh, because people come very well prepared, they talk to their, their allies uh, through the virtual media much before the real conference happens. They take, they have shared interests, they come with a very good understanding of issues. Your, your tactical advantage, I'm not talking about strategic advantage, I'm talking about the tactical advantage which you get in a real forum is still not there in a virtual forum. Even after you have a common position on strategic a common strategic position you will still fail tactically and without tactics no international negotiation really succeeds and the core or the hub of the tactical victory comes at the, at the podium i have myself experienced uh, what happened when we had a tough round on a chairman's uh, um, panel or what you call a contact group which I had, to, I was a nodal point for that. I had to bring United States, Kenya, uh, France, and other countries. In the United States was, of course, on biodiversity was only an observer, but still it was an important player. They will observe and pass some remarks or the other. So bringing them together is a very tough thing. It requires a lot of tactics. It requires a lot of rewording, wording. This is not possible in a virtual So I would imagine that all the worthwhile conferences. Uh, connected to global commons have been postponed. WHO had to meet, but there was no other way because they were talking about something in which the world had got sunk. So they had to come out of it. But again, I don't think it's a typical assembly of the WHO that met this year under virtual conditions. So there were just fairly economies on China, US, uh, spat on who contributed to the pandemic and who did not. So in substance, I would say a lot of exciting things should not happen in the virtual media. Negotiations have to happen in the real world. And it is worthwhile postponing. Professor, we see many international conventions and organizations that work on the global level. But while most of these organizations and conventions work towards global commons, it becomes a challenge to figure out which conventions or organizations are doing well and which are not performing up to the mark. As a final question, what do you think are the parameters for evaluating the success of international conventions and what efforts have been made to analyze the performance of conventions at the UN level? See, the United Nations has got a very, very robust system of evaluation which it conducts. Uh, it has got a variety of evaluation tools, evaluation methods. There are committees, there are systems all in place to every uh, to take stock of what has happened with a particular organization, whether it is a uh, whether it is a program or it's a specialized organization. They have a system, and they go through it very carefully. They do a very good job, uh, and they have a system-wide approach also. For instance, I will tell you there is an organization which is called the Joint Inspection Unit. Now, this is like a terror. You know, they will land up, they will pick up certain things, and they will completely 
they submit a report to the UN Secretary General, and then the UN Secretary General tells the Convention Secretary, this is what you, the Convention parties, and this is what is the assessment of your performance. It's very critical. It is tends to be absolutely unsparing when it comes to uh, talking about limitations. They are all there. But the problem is, yes, you have a point. Uh, the JIU is a dreaded body. It is like our controller and auditor general you know, in C and AG in India. They are a dreaded body. They make you really work and make you very careful about the, the every dollar that you spend. But having said that, the larger effectiveness of an organization has to be done differently. JIU, with all its uh, effort and competence and all that, it has like an auditor approach. There's an auditor approaching a particular organization. Auditor sees it in a particular way. But from a larger perspective, a more eclectic perspective, I would say that UN organizations need to be uh, evaluated on, in terms of their mission, their efficiency. Efficiency gets tested by JIU and others. Their effectiveness and their ramifications. You know, this is my own framework, which I have proposed to you in the context of Biodiversity Convention and as well as other certain conventions. Uh, even the UNESCO conventions, I have proposed this. This, this is, uh, if you have this foursome approach of looking at an organization and evaluating it, then you get a comprehensive idea about whether they are, which organization is better than the other. Now, what does this mean? I would say that we started off by talking about WHO's mandate. And what did I say was WHO's mandate? WHO's mandate was highest possible level of health or safety in the world. It is also, it has to be independent of action and recommendation. And it is about reaching proper resources to the people who are suffering from illness. Now, this is the mission. Now, mission, I, I'm not saying it is ignored, but it is not, it is something which is taken for granted in routine evaluations. So, if that is taken, uh, if that mission was taken into account, the kind of critique that we are talking about WHO these days, when making about uh, WHO's activities in the COVID-19 phase, it would not have risen at all. If you are just, uh, COVID-19 threw up the WHO's inefficiencies, but you should understand that it is all related to the mission. Why the WHO did not fulfill its character? So if routine evaluations don't take that into account, you, you lose half the spirit of your evaluation. But of course, as I told you, efficiency, how did it spend the dollar? Was it transferred properly? Was it, uh, what does a transaction cost? Did that uh, one dollar uh, that got sent to uh, Zambia, did that money reach the villages, the village cooperatives? Yes, uh, it reached. It was only about 10 cents less when it reached the villages. You can say the transaction cost was low, very efficient or not efficient, you can say. But most of the inspections are audited reports are like that, efficiency fact. But effectiveness, what did it bring to the Zambian village? Zambian village, uh, well, vaccination was not very successful, or you can say that it was 100% successful because people went about working more. That is the ramification part. I don't think organizations are evaluated at that with that level of intensity. If UN organizations were evaluated at with that level of 
intensity, perhaps uh, this UM system as a whole would have benefited. Thank you, Professor. Those were some wonderful insights and it was a pleasure having you here with us for the IMB podcast. So that's it from the IIMB podcast today. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Do send in your comments, feedbacks and suggestions and we will be happy to read them. Have a great day.